0: Welcome to Stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories. And it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R. And now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. hey funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in to stat, if you dare, cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in Podcast Land. This is Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm not alone. It's me, Mary. It's me, Mary. I'm not feeling so Mary quite right con- now. She's feeling quite contrary. <laughs> <laughs> and my thoughts are really scary. Oh, we're doing a whole rhyme. Yeah. Um, it's about time. <laughs> okay. It is about time to finish this final Dale Cavanus episode. I I think <laughs> I did my last recording of this was sometime in November.
1: Yeah, December was a little a little bit crazy for us and everything. So
0: So sorry about that, you guys. I don't know if you remember anything from that episode. Feel free to go back and re listen to him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to my brief recap. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah he's a, piece a psycho of shit. A psycho doctor. Yeah. He's a
0: narcissist. You know. Yeah. Dale Cavernass. <laughs> oh, good one. Yeah. Zing. Zing. Bazinga. Um, okay. I'm going to try not to do this stream of consciousness stuff like I usually do, like whatever pops into my head, I say, like what I'm doing right now. Okay, Dale Cavaniss, let's talk about, let's talk about Dale Cavaniss. Okay, I did it again. Oops, I did it again. Okay, guys, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I guess I'm just like so wound up. Dave Cavernass. Here we go. We last left off with Dale kicking Marion out of his office, refusing to support his family. He cried poor and that he was broke, but he actually was those things. But the thing is, it's it's all his fault that he did it, and he didn't think or care about anybody else in his life. It was all for Dale. Let's just keep a little bit aside for the family. Eh. He made no you know um he had no qualms in saying i don't want i don't like i don't like my kids i don't like my wife everybody embarrasses me fuck them all yeah so he had blown hundreds of thousands of dollars on bad investments and reckless spending property stock market farming partying cars gambling and um he was committing health insurance fraud on top of that. And he was constantly borrowing money from his wealthy friends that he would never pay back. But none of that's his fault, of course. Mm -mm, No. Remember Marilyn, his office manager forever. Mm -hmm. She'd finally had enough and she quit by the time that she quit and he rehired her, or begged her to come back. She was probably making like $750,000 an hour because he kept, (laughs) Paying her more to come back. Ay. yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, he hired a young man by the name of Eddie Miller, who was, he was perfect for the job because he had a certificate of public health management and, you know, he was, you know, set and ready to go. However, Marilyn spent the last three weeks of her employment training Eddie. So can you imagine, office manager needs to spend three weeks training the other guy because it's such a fucked up mess. Eddie was the perfect target for Dale's cruelty. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Eddie so you can understand what a scumbag Cavanagh was. You know, I just, in my head, I see Eddie walking to the office and I'm like, turn around, don't go in. You don't need this job that bad. Anyway, Eddie was in his 20s. He was sweet and shy, kind and compassionate. He lived at home and took care of his sick mom. He played the organ at his church, which he absolutely loved to do. And he was overweight and self-conscious. So I don't know if you can think of a more wholesome man than this to work for such a piece of shit. What's worse is that Eddie admired Cavanagh. He felt honored to work for him. And this was the perfect storm for abuse. Of course, you know, that was the he, the image he had around town.
1: Right, so, you know, yeah, he was the the big man around town, the legend, the the hometown hero. But yeah. if they only knew what was going on behind closed doors,
0: exactly. Well, many of them did know what was going on behind closed doors, and they're like, "Oh man, they I swoon for his bad behavior because he's such a badass." One of the first things Cavanis did was put Eddie on a diet. Can you imagine, guys? Overweight, you're fat. You're going on a diet. And how he helped him put him on a diet was with um, amphetamines, which was basically what was in diet pills at the time. So right, many yeah. people became speed freaks. Yeah. You know, um, unintentionally to lose weight. There, I don't know if you remember the song Mother's Little Helper by the Rolling Stones. And there's a book called I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can.
1: This is right. Yeah, I think I remember that one. Yeah, that, I these, remember the book.
0: The drugs that were given to women to calm down and to lose weight. It was a combo of amphetamines and benzos. It absolutely. You're and you're down. You're up <laughs> and you're down. Exactly. Or, you know, basically it was uh, eight ball light. An eight <laughs> ball is heroin and coke mixed together. You don't want to be too up? You don't want to be too down. You want to be nice in the middle. hmm So, I mean, you had a whole what
1: was it like Valium was the meaning? Val- yeah. Man. Yeah.
0: Or, you know, you had a whole um generation of of addicts that didn't realize what they were taking. You know, all oh, the woman's upset. She's hysterical. So we gotta calm her the fuck down. She's fat. She needs to lose weight. I mean, it's just you know absolute bullshit. So let's let's move on. So anyway, poor Eddie uh, was was uh, um you know basically told you want to work here, you need to lose some weight, and he was given benzo, he was given uh, amphetamines, and he actually asked Dale to take him off of them, and Dale's like, well, if you're going to eat yourself to death, no, I'm not. And then Eddie realized he was really hooked on these things, and he slowly took himself off. So Dale was this like, absolutely not. I don't want a fat person. And so it was nothing about Eddie and his health. It was about Cavanis. Yeah. How it reflected on him. Yeah. So Marilyn taught Eddie how to do the books properly. She told Cavanis not to get involved. He's just just like, this is not your business. And she's basically saying no fraud. I'm going to teach you how to not do fraud and don't listen to him. So things went well for the first couple of years, you know, with some blips here and there. And because he idolized Kavanagh, you know, he had a blind eye to many things, but it slowly deteriorated. Eddie did a great job. And that kind of bothered. No, it did bother Dale because he couldn't push him in the direction of a fraud. And the things that he slowly started to see was that Kavanagh spent more money than he earned, you know, obviously. But now Eddie saw it. Um and he was reckless with his spending and like I said all the things that put him into debt and Eddie's like wait a minute you have like two hundred thousand dollars coming in a year this is in the nineteen late nineteen sixties early seventies what the hell this should not be the case
1: mm-hmm. yeah that was a lot of money back then oh
0: yeah um and then he would hear him on these brutal screaming matches uh, with people that he owed money to he would just be like I'll kill you I'll hunt you down and like, just these screaming matches. Eddie witnessed terrible abuse to some of his patients. So for some of the patients, he was that kind and caring, loving doctor, at least appeared that way. And for others, he was absolutely horrible. He would humiliate them. And all his bad behavior was, quote unquote, a joke. And it wasn't his fault that people couldn't take a joke, you know, and he'd get mad when they didn't get it or called them out.
1: Yeah, but he's a doctor. He's supposed to be professional. You don't joke about stuff like
0: that. No. Anyway, um, Eddie didn't like his his jokes. He thought they were cruel. They made Eddie uncomfortable and anxious. He had a very kind heart and didn't like seeing people getting hurt, especially from someone in a position of trust. I mean, mm, they yeah, trusted him one. with their, their lives. And he would prey on the undereducated and poor. Because they wouldn't really know better. Not their fault. I mean, the poverty and... he should know better. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. So he would do horrible things to his patients, and then he would brag about it. I mean, he, he bragged to anybody who would listen to him. And, you know, like I said, most of his patients blindly followed him. And took everything he said literally. I'm going to give you an example right here. And it comes from the the book Murder in Little Egypt. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read a quote directly from there, okay? Quote, a widower in his late 60s explained that every time he walked in front of his TV set, it changed channels. The man wondered whether he was electrically charged, a human remote control unit, and asked the doctor to check him out. Dr. Kavanagh obliged running all sorts of tests, like an ECG, blood work, so on, and pronounced the patient as non-electric conductive. But the old fellow persisted. His TV set still changed channels, he said, every time he walked past it. He had to sit dead still to get through an entire program. This is what Dale said, quote, I'll cure him this time, set up another appointment. If this guy wants a diagnosis, he'll sure get one. Dr. Cavanus ushered the man into the examination room and told him to take off his clothes. And he said this, I want you buck naked. And then he called out for someone to bring him in a light bulb. And he said, Make it 100 watt. We want to be able to pick up any current. Dr. Cavanus told the man to bend over.
1: Oh, God, no.
0: He stuck the end of the light bulb into his rectum, twisting it around. Then he said this, It lights up all right. I'll tell you what, you're a regular electrical conduit. The the man said, what do I do now? And then Dale said, there's only one thing you can do. Every time you watch TV, you got to wrap up your feet in aluminum foil. That's the only way you'll be non-conductive. That's like sexual assault, basically. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, the man did as he was told, but was soon calling again saying that his set was still changing channels. When Dr. Cavanus refused to see him, he finally caught on. He complained around town that Dr. Cavanus had made a fool of him. But people either did not believe it or thought it was funny. Another good Dr. Dale story. So that's the end of the, the quotes from the book. Yeah, so like you said before. He, he basically is, like sodomized the guy with a light bulb. That's exactly what he did. And it was funny and too bad if he can't take a joke. That's so completely unprofessional. Yeah, it's it's horrible. It was assault. Um, so Eddie like, want- and degrading and humiliating. Oh yeah, I mean the whole all of it, all of it. And you know he was telling everybody about it. I- <laughs> I Eddie know. wanted to quit, but he was afraid of Cavanis. Like I said, he felt that he knew too much, and that Cavanis would threaten him with his life. So, Eddie either witnessed or was told by Dale about the victimization and cruelty of his patients, his criminal behavior, and threats or assaults he inflicted upon bill collectors or people that threatened to sue him. Here's another example about how he threatened a bill collector. He went to the house of one man, a bill collector, like I said, at night. He was plastered. He knocked on the door. His wife answered. He said to his wife, go get your husband husband comes downstairs in his pajamas points a gun at his head and said come with me takes him into his car drives him off into the middle of nowhere dumps him off and says don't bug me anymore don't come after me anymore because the next time i'll kill you so you know so he basically
1: a, a you know at in a state drunken... Duper rage whatever abducts this guy at gunpoint. At gunpoint, kidnaps him basically, mm-hmm.
0: threatens him, mm-hmm. and then leaves him in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and then the guy doesn't bug him anymore. Eddie also knew of all the women that Dale slept with. It wasn't just he had a mistress and Martha. He was sleeping with nurses and patients, female patients. Mm-hmm. They would continue to have him as their doctor even after the affairs. So don't, so like right there, there's a lot of uh, gaslighting and threats and you name it going on. Mm-hmm. Completely unprofessional oh, and yeah.
1: uh, sexual abuse of a client. Yeah. Clients.
0: Uh, yeah. And by, like I said, by 1966, he was a full blown, unpredictable, violent alcoholic and he drank anywhere and everywhere. So Eddie knew that he had thermoses of vodka stashed everywhere, two or three in the car, two or three around the office, two or three around the hospital, thermoses of vodka. And he'd be sipping at them all the time. And he even, the the staff at the hospital knew to have a special oxygen tank set up just for him because he'd come into work wasted or hungover, and then he would have an oxygen mask on him the whole time that he operated. And throughout this time, it's kind of unusual, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) But they complied. They complied. They knew he was hungover or drunk. And he's like, look, I need some oxygen. And he would drop his drawers. Anywhere. And say to a nurse, give me a B12 shot. And he had a pocket full of amphetamines everywhere he went. So he was drinking, popping amphetamines or hungover, you name it. But he was jittery and out of control. And people just put up with it. Oh, that's Dr. Dale. B-12 shots. What does that do? It's like a liver protector. It helps, you know, your liver is uh, screwed. okay. So because
1: okay. so, he was drinking so much. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And it will perk you up. A little bit. You know, some people are B12 um, deficient, so, you know, they go to the doctor and get some shots and, Mm. you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing, so.
1: I can't believe the man was performing surgery. Like, oh, boy. By 1967,
0: his financial situation went from ruin to absolute dire. He and, and Eddie had been working magic by trying to keep their head above water, and he was exhausted. It was constant you know, trying to perform magic tricks to keep. Oh, the stress levels would have been Oh, yeah, flipping insane. one bill to this bill and putting off this and, you know, all this kind of stuff. that Just like, you know, playing with the books. And he he did it legally, so it made it even harder. Uh, and he would try to talk to Dale about it, and Dale would be like, no, that's your fucking job. I don't want to hear about it, unless it came down to committing fraud or trying to, you know, suck more money out that, that wasn't there. And he even told Eddie... Cut off Marion entirely. Don't give any more money to her. Don't give any more money to the kids. Not that he was paying for the kids, but the one thing that was set up was a, a grocery account. So she could go to the store, get groceries, and then it would be paid off, you know, at the end of the month kind of thing. And then he was like, I, I can't do that. So he was actually the only thing that you might consider. Well, it wasn't even illegal. He was he was taking funds, hiding it from Dale, and he kept paying off this um making sure that she had You know, this grocery store to go go to to get food for her kids and some money for her to have over and above everything else. So, if it wasn't for Eddie, you know, they'd be completely screwed. So, finally, Eddie worked up the nerve to quit. And just like you um, expected, Dale said, No, you're not quitting, you're not leaving, and I will ruin your life if you even try. I will get you evicted from your home. I will have your mother living on the streets and I will hunt you down. So Eddie's like, fuck, just like, oh, he probably said, oh, no, <laughs> he went and said, fuck. A piece of shit. But yeah, he so he was terrified. He was like, see, I knew I couldn't do this. But he kept trying. He tried a few more times and he got the same results from... Um, Dale, but eventually he just said, that's an amount, and got hired at a, another doctor's office. And what did Dale do? He called up that doctor and said, I demand you to fire this guy. <laughs> and it's like was, a jealous lover. You can't go out with anybody else. But just like, instead of like just bad mouthing him, he's like, and you, I demand you. To fire him. Because he was so used to just doing whatever he wanted. Getting what he wanted, yeah. So this doctor is like, no, I'm not firing him, you know. Um, And uh, he was also writing, like, death threats and violent notes and going to Eddie's house and putting them through the mail slot. (laughs) This guy's such a psycho. Talk about your little temper tantrum because you can't have your way. Only Mm. this is a grown man with a gun. Yeah, and drunk. And, Most of the time. And um, and on amphetamines. And, yeah, unstable. With an entire town that is backing him. Yeah, frightening. <sighs> okay, February 1970, the house that Mary and the boys lived in burned to the ground. They lost everything. And they believed that it was three-and-a-half-year-old Patrick that set the house on fire. He had been um, seen with matches lighting things on fire. And he was home alone with a babysitter She said to the babysitter, look, this is what he'll do. Don't um, have him out of your sight. And I guess he did. And the house burned to the ground. Now, they had no money and no home. And Dale offered no help and showed no interest. The fact was he was getting $100,000 insurance for this house. He didn't give them a penny. He left this house like a burned skeleton on one of the main streets of El Dorado and didn't just left it there. (laughs) Um, But he, well, but he did do a kind thing. He bought them two shitty trailers and put them on his farm. So five people were now living in two shitty trailers on his farm. So Patrick and Marion lived in one and the other three boys lived in the other. And that's, that was it. That was, you know, there you go. I did something for you. So Peck Cavaness, his own dad, was disgusted by his son's behavior. And he confronted Dale. So you know what Dale did? He got in his car and tried to run him over. <laughs> for crying <out> and Peck <laughs> said if he hadn't have jumped out of the way, he would have done it. There was no question in his mind that his son would have killed him. So his dad
1: tries to straighten him up and he basically tries to run him over. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yep. Oh my goodness. Sorry, I was just taking a drink of Gatorade. There. <laughs> I need to. I need my energy to keep going. I just
1: sit here and shake my head the whole time. So <laughs> you pretty much do.
0: So if you hear whoosh, whoosh, going in the background, that's Mary's head. <laughs> Me going like hitting the microphone with my yeah, head. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't. So it was a matter of time before Dale was going to kill someone, and he did. On the evening of April 8th, 1971, he killed 29-year-old Daniel McClaskey and his 10-month-old daughter Deidre and seriously injured the baby's mom. He was absolutely drunk, like practically blackout drunk. And he was trying to pass someone on this this small road. And then there was a car coming in on, on coming traffic. He had to whip back in. So he didn't, you know, have a head on uh, collision and he bumped a car doing it. Then he decided he wanted to pass again. And this time he smashed into the McCloskey's car and killed them. When the police arrived, they found that he had a bottle of whiskey that was three quarters empty sitting in the seat beside him. He was taken to the hospital to see if he was okay. He was fine. He had a couple of cuts and and bruises. And he was so drunk that he couldn't sign the hospital documents. Of course,
1: the drunk never gets hurt, right? Yeah.
0: So... What was his blood alcohol? Oh, his blood alcohol was (laughs) 0.24. But this was taken two and a half hours after he got to the hospital. So, you know, it would have been much higher.
1: So basically, that means that 24% of his blood volume is alcohol.
0: And I'm sure it was pushing, you know, 0.3 before, you know, they waited so long to do his blood work. He was charged with two counts of reckless homicide, and he could be facing jail time. The, The accident made it to the papers, and the citizens of Saline County were stunned. Cavanis and Marion were inundated with phone calls, offering support and outrage over the charges. They were reassuring dear Dr. Cavanis that they would always be loyal to him, that he would always be their doctor. And Marion was so angry. She couldn't believe that, like, what would it take for these people to see him for what he really was? He killed two people, put a mother into a coma, absolutely wrecked. And they're like, that's not fair.
1: Couldn't possibly have done that.
0: Oh, no, no, no. He did it, but he didn't mean to. I mean, he was drunk. He would normally behave that way. In 1974, after years of the case being tied up in court, the final verdict was two years probation and a thousand dollar fine, which he didn't pay.
1: That's just such a slap in the face. Yeah.
0: So he literally got away with murder. Um, the the mom pursued um, legal action. Obviously didn't go anywhere with the court. Then she did a civil suit and settled for a hundred thousand bucks. And which, you know, she's just like that. Uh, that makes me sick that, you know, that uh, I can't put a price on my my husband no. and daughter. But what what was she left with hospital bills and. <sighs> anyway, yeah. um, so Marion couldn't stand living in El Dorado any longer. And her boys were suffering living in two trailers on a on a farm with their father having access to them even more and being absolutely verbally and physically abusive with them. And she just was like, I, we need to get out of here. So she reached out to her brother who helped her find a lovely farmhouse to, to live in to rent. And it was in a suburban neighborhood of St. Louis. The schools were good, and she she found a good job as um, uh, a clinical instructor at a nursing school. And it looked like it was really moving forward. She was getting away from under his his thumb, run, and that there was run,
1: girl, run.
0: Yeah, and that uh, you know there was sunshine ahead.
1: Get the heck out of Dodge, or yeah. It, or in this case, El Dorado. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> run. So. Um, So other than Patrick, who was, you know, quite young still at the time, the boys didn't want to leave. Even though it was terrible there and their father was horrific, that was their town. That's where they grew up. That's where they were going to school. And it's this trauma bond. Even though he's an abusive piece of shit, they're hoping that one day that he'll, you know, be kind to them. So they wanted to finish school in El Dorado. Um, Sean didn't want to leave his father. And... None of the boys wanted to move away from their grandparents. So just to be an asshole, he made it difficult for her to take the boys. He wanted nothing to do with them. But now he's like, I want, I want, um, I want Sean and Patrick and you can have Mark and Kevin. She's like, no way. No, absolutely not. So he dropped it after a while, but, uh, you know, he just had to be a complete piece of shit about it. Marion filed for divorce in December 1971. Dale was ordered to pay child support, which he never did. Uh-huh. But Marion didn't care. She didn't want to be dependent on him any longer. She just wanted him out of her and her boy's life. Uh-huh. So a year goes by and the boys are still not able to settle in. And, you know, Patrick, like I said, being young, he was able to. But uh, they were being bullied at school because, they, you know, their hick accents and things like that. Uh, their marks had plum- plummeted and... uh and then Mark started drinking heavily and, and doing drugs, and he ended up not graduating. Sean put on a ton of weight, and he was afraid to leave his mother's side like he was everywhere she was when she was at home. And he was failing school as well. And even though Patrick was doing okay in kindergarten, in, in a way, you know, he's really young, he really started to withdraw into himself as well. He just, you know, uh, had his own little inner world. In 1972, Marion bought her own home. Mark was working odd jobs living in one of the trailers on Dale's farm. He was actually working for his father for $2 an hour, even in 1972 was horrific pay. And uh, he continued to drink and do drugs. And the abuse from Dale was worse than ever. It was almost a daily thing. And then Sean moved back to El Dorado to attend school and to be near his abusive father. And he also lived um, uh, in a trailer on the farm. In 1976, Kevin was attending a technical college and he was doing really well. And Sean and Patrick were actually doing pretty good as well. Mark was still working on Dale's farm and living in the trailer. He was really depressed and withdrawn, still drinking heavily. On Easter 1977, Mark was 22 at the time and he had invited his mother and brothers to go to Little Egypt and spend Easter so they could spend Easter together. Now, by this point, both Noma and Peck had passed away, but uh, they had held on to the family farm. Marion and the boys arrived at the family farmhouse on Thursday, April 7th, and Mark was not there. Marion was surprised. She expected him to be there, and no one had saw him the next day, Good Friday, and then by Saturday morning, they still hadn't heard from him, and um, Marion was anxious, worried, and upset, obviously, right? Dale finally stopped by for coffee on Saturday morning, Marion approached him and said that she was really concerned about Mark. So Kevin sort of was like the man of the family, the most level-headed of them all. He just tried to to soothe his mother's worries. But Dale said this, I don't know. I got a funny feeling about him. I think he's dead.
1: What? Why would he say that?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So everybody was just like... You know what? They just thought he was being a dick. You know, it,
1: well, he it, is a dick. Well, it's yeah, but they were just
0: like, dick. oh, okay, that's just him again. So Kevin decided to go look for Mark and to try to put his mom's fears and everybody's fears at rest. So Kevin, Sean, and Marion all drove to the farm. When they pulled onto the property, they saw Mark's jeep, and they're like, oh, okay, okay, hopefully he's home. And uh, just to be safe, Kevin told his mom to stay in the car, and he and Sean headed to the jeep. So if you can picture a long driveway at a farm and then a trailer and then a jeep on the on the road on the other side and there was tall grass to walk through they walk through this tall grass and they go to the driver's side of the car and kevin opens the door and sees blood on the driver's side door in the meantime sean is sort of walking around kicking around in the grass she see he sees Mark, and he was dead, and he calls Kevin over and he's like, "Oh my God, it's Mark." He goes over and looks at him, and Marion says it is basically coming out to see what's going on, and they're like, "Stay in the car, stay in the car and She came running over and was just absolutely hysterical, and what they saw was they knew it was Mark because of his jeans and just, I guess, the boots. They just knew it was their brother, but he had basically been completely ravaged by animals. Jesus. And insects. So he had no face. Oh my His God. and anything that was exposed had been eaten. So I mean, can you imagine this horrific sight? I don't care whether it's a family member or not. Can you imagine just seeing this? So they called the police. The police arrive and they're complete unprofessional assholes i wouldn't expect anything less coming from this town and the one of the cops is saying to to marilyn come down lady just just stop it cut it out and she's like that's my son over there well we'll calm down kevin is pissed he's like leave her alone that's her son so then the cops come over and they're tra- they're tromping all through the crime scene okay so they were taking Polaroids, but the paper that fell off the pol- Polaroids was all over the place. They were smoking cigarettes, dropping them all around the area, tromping their boots around, you name it. Um, Kevin was absolutely incensed. And so he went over to the truck to look inside. And what he saw was a gun case on the on the passenger side with a bit of, um, so it was a rifle with a bit of um the end of the rifle, two or three inches of it sticking out of the the gun case, and there had been a hole. So it looked like the gun had shot through when he opened the case. It had been booby trapped. There was a coat hanger that was attached. Uh, the hook was attached to the uh, trigger and the whole setup, you know, there the way that there was a, a shirt, it was sort of hanging out, out of the door sort of, and just basically was set up. I, I don't know exactly how it would work, but basically it was a booby trap. Um, the coroner and detective Jack Nolan arrived to the scene. Cause obviously it was more than the, uh, local yokels could handle. And Jack was absolutely stunned to see the, the site, how they, what they, how they had just practically destroyed the scene. And the, the kicker to all of it is that the sheriff had the rifle pointed up in the air going, that's a hell of a gun. So the gun, the weapon that killed him, me? he had taken it out of the case. So you can't get fingerprints if you if you wanted to.
1: Mm-hmm. Now it's got his fingerprints all over it. Yeah.
0: And, they, and so you can no longer see the position of how the gun was set up. And he's like holding it up going, hell of a gun. <laughs> Maybe
1: someone paid him off.
0: I don't know. I just... I just think, you know, what a stupid fucking idiot.
1: Incompetent, unprofessional, just, you know, pick pick one.
0: Yeah. Add it in. The coroner believed that Mark had been dead for between 12 and 24 hours. He was shot through the heart at close range. And he could tell by the sight and the neatness of the hole that went through his heart that it, you know, in fact was at close range. Jack Nolan decided to keep most of the information of his discoveries to himself. He didn't trust the local police. Um, Rightfully so. Yeah, he he saw the disaster that they had created. So Dale showed up acting the grieving father. But after all, that's all it was, was just acting. Family and friends gathered at the Cabinets farm um, early the next day. And Dale didn't show up until 8 p.m. that night. What? Yeah.
1: Where the hell was he?
0: Who knows? And when he arrived, he was his regular, arrogant and and cold self, smug asshole. And then he decided to go into gruesome detail about what Mark's body, what state his his body was in. And everyone, especially Marion, was horrified. She was mortified that he would be so callous and cruel. So you can imagine this ass coming in late and saying, oh, yeah, like his face was eaten off and, uh, you know.
1: Probably got
0: off on it. Oh, 100% he did. Um, And the fact that he did this to his son. (laughs) The funeral was set for Easter Monday, and on Sunday, Dale visited the house to discuss funeral arrangements, but Marion had already gone ahead and done everything. Yeah. So it was then that Dale announced that he had taken out life insurance on Mark in February. And it was supposed to be for Mark's future. But he had never given a shit about his kids. So why would all of a sudden, when the, when the guy's 22 years old, say, oh, yeah, I am taking life insurance out on you and you can cash it in at a certain time so that, you you know, you have. Ugh. So guess who the primary beneficiary was? Of course, it was Dale. So he had taken it out in February and Mark was dead by April. Yeah. So a lot of thoughts ran through Marion's head. She's like, oh, I think he killed him. But then she pushed it out of her head because, you know, oh, my God, he couldn't have done that. And the thing is, Dale was saying that he wanted to kill his kids all the time. But it was also for always for embarrassing him. If that son of a bitch embarrasses me, fill in the blank, um, I'm going to kill him. So could it be possible?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes in frustration, parents go like, I just want to strangle them, But they don't really do it. Right? No, but,
0: but this guy was like, he would do it. Yeah. Uh, Special Agent Nolan continued to work the case, but by June, he had to file something. And uh, he put a de- detailed report to the Division of Criminal Investigation, the DCI. He listed the case as murder, but not any suspects. And it's a good thing that he did, because that would play into into future happenings, run-ins with the law. And, but the coroner ruled it as an accidental death. Buddy, buddy, doctor, coroner, buddy,
1: buddy. Yeah. Or just incompetent,
0: like the local police. (laughs) And the more that Nolan dug around to find out about Dale, the more he was like, how does this guy, how is he not in jail? And how is he able to keep his practice, his license? Uh, In June 1977, Kevin visited his father. He had undertaken another harebrained scheme, and Kevin wanted to see it for himself. And uh, he went with his future wife, Charlie. So an argument broke out between Kevin and Dale, and these were the things that were said. Again, I'm going to take it. These are quotes from the book. Dale, you shut your mouth. You're no better than your brother, Mark. Kevin, wait a goddamn minute. What do you mean by that? Dale, I never did like him, turkey head. I never liked Mark. He was no good son of a bitch. Dale, Kevin, I'm not going to stand for this shit. Now they're nose to nose and he, um, Kevin is much bigger than his father. I happened to like Mark. I loved him. He was my brother. Then Dale says, what the hell for? He was no good. He was nothing but a failure. Why the hell would anyone like him? Again, again. This is their deceased his brother, his yeah. son. And Kevin said, you lousy creep. You take that back, what you said about Mark. And then Dale said, you may be able to whip my ass, but I'll get you. I'll get you. Oh, that sounds like a threat. So after that uh, confrontation, he get uh, Kevin gets back in the car with Charlie and says, do you think that he could have murdered, Dale could have murdered Mark? And she said, yeah, I do. Because <laughs> my father-in-law is crazy? Yeah. So Sean had always been a quiet and sensitive boy. He had compassion and empathy and he felt everything deeply and he suffered from anxiety since he was really young. So he started drinking heavily and he had a, a serious uh, problem at 16 and was a full blown alcoholic at 20. Mm. In 1982, Kevin and Charlie were married and they both had a really good jobs. She was a nurse and he was an engineer and uh, they were living comfortably. In 1983, they convinced Sean to go to rehab, and they paid for it and supported him through it. One of Dale's new tricks was arson. He had burned down one of the trailers on the farm for insurance, and apparently he got $80,000. That's what he told Kevin, which makes me think, hmm, was it Patrick that burned down the house? Or did Dale have something to do with it? Because he was also doing it to cars. and Or
1: did he encourage his son to do it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of different things that... the habit from his dad, yeah. ...of of his that were started to burn. He was lighting things on fire, like cars and stuff like that. He was also involved in a drug ring. He was supplying morphine to drug dealers for a nice, tidy profit. So the dealers and uh, Dale were eventually arrested, and Dale was let go, unscathed, while the others served time. And, of course, this scheme, the worst of it all, was involving life insurance. He convinced Kevin and Sean to let him take life insurance out of them for their future. And he was the primary be- beneficiary oh, if they were to die. So for a while, Sean had been doing better after he completed the treatment program. And as far as Marion went, she was getting married to a lovely man by the name of Les Green. And he was a president of his own ad agency. He had lost his wife to cancer. He had one adult son. And he welcomed Marion's children and had no problem with Patrick, who was the only child still living with them. So he was he was a really good guy. It sounds like she was able to settle in with a, a nice nice man.
1: Yeah, the starter husband didn't work out, that's for sure. Yeah. So
0: they they were married. <laughs> yeah. So they were married on, on June nineteen eighty four. On December eighth, nineteen eighty four, which was a Saturday. Sean had gone to dinner to Kevin and Charlie's house. And they had a nice quiet evening. He stayed overnight. And uh they left with saying we're gonna meet again or hang out again to talk about, you know, Christmas plans. On Monday, December 10th evening, Dale called Kevin to ask if he had heard from Sean, and Sean um didn't have a phone. In fact, he was living in squalor. His place was a wreck, he had no heat, he had no electricity, he was warming the place with um like a, a Coleman stove.
1: Jeez, oh, that's dangerous. Yeah, and there
0: were, you know, and, and he had been, he had started drinking heavily again. <sighs> so Dale told Kevin that he wanted to to talk to, to Sean. So Kevin and Charlie stopped by his apartment that night and Sean didn't answer the door. So they left a note for him to uh, call Dale. On Wednesday the 12th, Sean did call Kevin and he relayed the message to him about Dale. On December 13th, the Thursday, at around 10.30, the phone rang. It was the police, and they told Kevin that they had found Sean dead. He was shot in the head. His body had been found in a remote area, and um, so he had been shot actually twice in the head. Obviously, Kevin was devastated, and the police asked him and Charlie to go see them at the station, and they met with David Barron of the St. Louis Police Department. During the conversation, it came out that this was Kevin's second brother to be shot and killed. As, you know, because... Right. that
1: Yeah, like at this point, Kevin's now lost two of his brothers.
0: To mm-hmm. murder... Or
1: to gunshots.
0: To gunshots. So Baron was like, hmm, hmm. what is yeah. that about? And he wanted to know more about the details of Mark's murder. And then you know, because he believed he was murdered, not a suicide. So they gave um, him Detective Jack Nolan's name. And remember, Nolan was like, this is a murder for sure. Right. So Barron got a hold of Nolan and told him what had been going on. So this is what the coroner's report said. He had two gunshot wounds and either one of them would have been fatal. One shot entered the back of his head and the other entered the side of his head behind his right ear. And it was estimated that that shot was from 18 to 24 inches away from his head. And his blood alcohol level was 0.26. So it was uh really high. That's a very close range. 18 to 24 inches. But in the same token, if you're going to shoot yourself, that's a long way.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess most people would put a gun... Right well, to I their think they head, They put right?
0: the gun right to their head. They don't like they don't pull want to it lose back and nerve. aim, yeah, exactly. And they want you know complete control of it. You know, you don't want to. Sh- it sounds awful, but you don't want to shoot yourself and rip your face off and live. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't a gun. It's it's it so is that's, what it is.
1: Ding ding ding! Suspicious
0: red flag. So Marion is just, uh, absolutely beside herself, distraught. Um, yeah. And they told Dale, and he showed absolutely no emotion. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, yeah. That's actually what he said. He's like, huh, yeah. That was his answer. At the apartment building that Sean lived at, he had a couple of neighbors who really took a liking to him. And their names were Mr. and Mrs. Crowick. And when Barron went to investigate, this is the st- what they told him. She was driving home from, from something. And when she was driving up her road, she saw a car that she didn't recognize. And this car was driving behind her, and at one point drove beside her, and like stopped. Then she's like, "What the hell saw it was a dark vehicle. The car went up and did a u turn. She pulled into her driveway, went in right away, and told her husband, "This is what's going on." He goes out to the 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 front of the building and sees this vehicle and he takes down, you know, that it was an Oldsmobile Tornado, and he gets the license plate.
1: Oh, thank goodness. Yeah.
0: But the actually, what happened, though, is that he didn't really have to try too hard to do it because the car had pulled in to their driveway. Mr. Crook immediately recognized him as Dale Cavanagh because he had met him one time before. So he goes in. They can hear him and Sean in the apartment and they were partying and drinking heavily and singing and stomping around the whole bit into the early morning hours. Then they heard them leave. After that, Barron took the plate number and looked it up. And in fact, it was Dale Cavanagh. He now was like, all right, he is like primary number one suspect now. He asked him to come down to the police station. He's talking to Dale and he says, Where were you on December 12th, December 13th? Oh, I was I was in Illinois at, at home. When was the last time you saw Sean? Uh, it must have been a month ago. So he was busted. A hundred percent busted <laughs> that he was lying. And Barron was like, All right, I got you, you son of a bitch. But they had to let him go because they had no, you know, real evidence to prove it was him but they knew it was him
1: yeah but they're but he's building a case because this guy's actually a competent individual and knows how to police
0: yeah yeah and and so was nolan but he could only you know take it so far right Mm -hmm. so nolan was like yeah it's him and he likely uh, killed mark as well and with him and nolan working together like for sure this is the guy he did it on saturday december 15th Kevin, Charlie and Dale and a few friends all went out for dinner and they were, you know, speaking fondly and reminiscing about Sean, all except Dale. And he was getting pissed off and all of a sudden he um, interrupted everybody and said this, quote, now, wait a minute, let's not make Sean into something he was not. (laughs) Yeah, he made him into something. And then Kevin said, what do you mean by that? And then Dale said, he was an embarrassment to me. He was just found fucking murdered. Kevin was irate and he just ripped uh, Dale's face off. On Monday the 16th, 1984, at the funeral, Dale acted jovial. He was laughing and joking and, you know, hamming it up with people. And um, he showed no sadness, no grief. It was like it was a party to him. Obviously, this didn't add up. And Nolan and Barron were there and they're like, what the fuck? (laughs) He's an embarrassment to himself. Yeah, but this is not a grieving man who just lost his son. I mean, No, because he he
1: knows he's getting insurance money from it, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, Uh, exactly. Dale was due to drive home the next day, Tuesday the 18th. Because he had lied that he hadn't seen Sean in four weeks and they had proof otherwise they could arrest him. So Baron told the police that were working with him not to let him cross state lines. And he tried to, and they arrested him. He was taken without incident. And they had already had some warrants approved. And while they were questioning him, they had already, Nolan was already getting his home raided and his car and everything else. They had some interviewed interviews set up. Uh, for alibis and one of them was Martha and she just flat out said he left this night and didn't come back until late this day and he was so cocky about it. He's like, go ahead, talk to Martha, thinking she would yeah, that... cover his ass. And she didn't. So that's
1: his mistress, right? His yeah. time mistress. Oh, she's finally fed up with his bullshit.
0: Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So Nolan and Baron were totally working together. They had just they had a beautiful setup here. And um Dale was like okay. I'm gonna need to cha- change my story here a little bit. It uh, looks like they did get me busted on this. So this is what he he changed his story to. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, th- this is this is good. He said that he was really concerned about Sean and he was gonna go check in on him. And while he was telling this, he was mit- like saying Mark, Sean, Sean, Mark, Mark, Sean. Like he was getting their names missed uh, screwed up. And, of course, it was Mark Sean, Sean Mark, because he killed both of them. Right. Like, it wasn't like Kevin Patrick. It was, yeah. And he showed absolutely no emotion. Not would you, again, not would you expect from a grieving father. And he was cold and he was smug. And you wouldn't expect that from someone who's being questioned about murder at a police station. Uh, so Kevin and Charlie were informed of Dale's arrest. And they're like, yeah. And they come to the station. They're like, we'll help in any way we possibly can. He filled them in what was going on. And he's like, what do you think? What do you think? Like, what was the motive? The reason why he would kill his son. And almost at the exact same time, they said insurance. He's like, oh, okay. Now we've got the motive. So he got $40,000 for Mark's death and $100,000. He had taken out insurance on not just Sean. But Kevin as well. Remember they both went.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. He's convinced them that he should take out life insurance. Yeah. He, so, sorry.
0: He he convinced them yeah. he should take out life insurance on their, um, for their future. Exactly. No, it was for his $100, future. $100,000 each. You remember he said to Kevin, I'll get you. Yeah. Fuck. He probably would have. And your insurance policy too. So Baron laid out all the evidence of how um, Sean was found the coroner's report was and there it was all out for for dale to see that he was screwed but this is what dale said and this is a humdinger he'd gone to see like i like i said i started earlier he'd gone to see sean because he was worried about him yes the doting father yeah they started drinking and they were pretty hammered and decided to go out for a drive in the country they drove into a remote area and um they decided to pull over and look at cows they got out of the car <laughs> Well,
1: they like going cow tipping or something yeah like but
0: that. i'm not going to lie to you in my my youth and i lived in a rural area we might have gone out hammered driving in in a truck and and i'm really ashamed of that part of it i am but i mean getting out of the car and going let's look at cows was like an unusual thing you know again i'm i'm ashamed that i did that but I, uh, this is why i'm like i can see that They got out of the car, and after a few minutes, Sean asked Dale if he could see his handgun. So he gave it to Sean, and then Sean said, tell mom I'm sorry, and he shot himself in the head.
1: Right. This is his story.
0: That was the story. Right. So um, he immediately went to, to Sean to check his vital signs, and he determined that he was dead. So... At this point he was really worried about how Marion was going to take this, her son committing suicide. So he decided to shoot him in the back of the head to um to make it look like it was a fucking robbery murder. Can you imagine he's that these people are actually going to believe this. <sighs> so Baron asked him to show exactly how it was done. Like you were standing where he was standing, where what gun car, the whole bit. And of course it did not add up at all. And there's no way in a million years that this was a suicide. It was a homicide. And wouldn't, would it be uncommon for somebody who
1: is committing suicide to do it in front of somebody else? Like that's not as common, right? No.
0: don't just say hey dad let me have your gun tell mom i'm sorry bam
1: yeah like no but i mean just in general when people commit suicide they're usually found afterwards right well
0: yeah and i mean because they're they're they're, what the people that i think the people that are really distraught and really want to end everything do it alone because they don't want to upset family and they don't want to be stopped
1: you know right They don't want to burden anybody or anything, right?
0: And they they just want to do it quietly or however they decide. Yeah. Okay. So the medical examiner, the coroner, had the task of disproving Dale's story, and he did. Easily, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. So Dale's arrest was all over the news. It even went national. Meanwhile, in El Dorado... Its citizens were outraged that Dale, that Dale was charged with the murder of his sons. Well, actually, he wasn't charged for the murder of Mark. They couldn't really prove it, but he was charged with the murder of of Sean. And they supported him 100%. They even put together a fundraiser to help oh him pay for his legal God. bills. M- most beautiful. of the people that donated could barely pay their own bills. <laughs> but yet they were, you know, giving what they didn't have. And they sent out. A- all these letters, speaking on behalf of his character, that he was a generous, caring, hometown hero who cared deeply about people, so they sent these off, hoping that you know they'll let him out, and anybody who said anything against Dale in any way, they were threatened, or they were had the shit kicked out of them, like shunned, yeah. Of course, there were a couple people that were like, yeah, he did it, and two that stand out were Marilyn and Eddie, and they were like, yeah, no, 100%, he did it. <laughs> but they had already moved away uh, by then.
1: Well, because they knew what he was capable of. Oh, 100 and they also knew his financial situation, right? Well, I mean,
0: they both knew... They knew everything. Right? They knew what his character, they knew what he was all about. So his trial started on July 8th, 1985, and on July 13th, the prosecution had um, mistakenly entered evidence to the jury, and a mistrial was called. Oh. Yeah. A new trial was set to begin on November 14th, 1985. November 19th was the last day of the trial and closing arguments. The jury deliberated for only two and a half hours, and they found him guilty as charged for the murder of Sean.
1: Hallelujah. Yeah.
0: On January 6th, 1985, Kavanis was sentenced to death by gas.
1: Oh, wow. They still had that?
0: Yeah. And on Monday, November 17th, 1986, he was found hanging by some electrical cords. He had committed suicide. Cowards way out there. Yep. Had control to the very end. He left... um, a victimy suicide note. Oh, great! Where he, you know, uh, you can just imagine. I, I'm not even going to get into it, but it was all, you know, poor me, poor me. Yeah, um, I did the best I could. I yeah. tried
1: to be a good father.
0: He left everything Didn't even to take his punishment. No, no, he exactly. Take, take his loss. to the very end, and of course, he couldn't live life the way he wanted it, and uh, he was not going to let them decide how his life was going to play out. He left everything to Martha. Nothing to his sons or his ex wife. I could see not ex-wife, but nothing to his his sons. You might say, Oh, what did he have left? But he had a practice, you know, he had a farm, he had a few things that could, you know, be sold. Probably it went to paying off whatever debt he had, but still (laughs) it's a punch in the face to leave everything to Martha, the mistress. Um and uh he did not mention any of his sons' names. Marion, nothing. Nothing about them.
1: Because it was all about him.
0: Exactly. So that's it. That's yeah. the story. It's. Glad uh, to be done with him. Yes. We're glad to be done with all <laughs> I'd of them. I've
1: never heard of it before. You brought this up. But Neither had I. It's a fascinating case, but what a dirtbag. Yeah. Just total, it's just, total scumbag.
0: One of those things that you can see that a maniac can hold a town hostage, hold people hostage, like a cult. Mm-hmm. And uh, do the worst shit possible and he didn't hide it and they were like oh well, that's just Dr. Dale ha ha kaffa oh yeah guys that's the end of the case and uh Hallelujah. there you have it sorry that it took so long to get this, this case out and as you heard or as we told you in November end of November and December were very difficult uh month's time but it's a new year and it's looking like
1: <laughs> oh like last year it's looking
0: like 2021 on 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 already um on steroids not quite cuz there's no uh
1: please just wear a mask people get vaccinated
0: yeah we know it's not anybody that's listening to the show right now <laughs> that's true we're we're speaking to uh the choir you know preaching to the choir they're already down with it, doing it, doing the right thing. So, Mm -hmm. um, actually we're going to be doing an episode really soon talking about, um, COVID and anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. And I know we're all sick and tired of hearing about it, but we're, I'm going to break down and I already did this once before, but break down the psychopathy of these people because they're not right. They're
1: just selfish,
0: you know what. They are, but there's more to it than that. And this is not me letting them off the hook. It's like this is how scary this shit is. Mm. Um, their way of thinking. Because this is most of this is 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 the fault of people that allow this to continue to spread because of their their bullshit. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, you know, the, you can, you know, some people might not want to listen to that. Obviously I totally understand, but, uh, we feel the need to, uh, break it down the psychopathy of all this and, uh, look at it from a, a different angle, which I think makes it scarier. But, um, so yeah, that's it. So thank you everybody for, for listening to the show. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters, all the listeners. And if you guys are willing, I would love it if you gave uh, an iTunes review, that would be absolutely amazing. I love them. And uh, go check out the Facebook group. Again, it's an amazing group of people, and we have a lot of fun and, and talk about serious things. And a lot of it is is goofy stuff, so that um, you know we can sort of <laughs> blow off some steam, have a little a little laugh or two, and blow off a bit of steam. So anyway, yeah, that's it. And there will be a new episode coming out shortly. And like I said, I'm going to try my best. And hope to have regular episodes coming out now that it's, even though it's a new year that's looking pretty stanky, it doesn't mean that uh, we have to roll over to it. Okay, so thank you everybody for listening. Make sure you take care of yourselves and take care of one another and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode of Stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah, subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.